0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to um, the LSC public event. I am Grace Lorden. I am an associate professor in behavioral science here um, at the LSE and I'm also the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative. Um, you can tweet me tonight at atgracelorden underscore, I'm really happy to welcome you to Let's Talk Careers in a Post-Covid World, I have five fantastic speakers for you, um, before I introduce them I just want to let you know that we'll spend about five minutes talking to each speaker to kind of set the scene so you have some idea about what's on their mind this evening and then we will throw straight over to you, the audience, to ask questions. You can, though, even while we're discussing, start asking questions straight away and do start upvoting questions so I know which ones um, in order to take. Um, And I hope to get to those in about 30 minutes. Um, And, you know, ask anything that's on your mind that has to do with careers and entering the labour market or moving out of the current job that you have. Um, Just to um, give you the the hashtag for today's event, it's at LSE Public Events. So, again, do feel free to tweet um, as we go live. Um, I want to start by welcoming um, Dory Clark. So Dory is here from the United States, which is one of the benefits of COVID because I probably couldn't afford to bring you over here. So a very warm welcome from my virtual LSE setting um Dory is renowned for helping individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in noisy crowded uh, crowded world she's been named the number one communication coach in the world at Marshall Gold, uh, Goldsmith Coaching Awards and she is the author of Entrepreneurial New which is a book that I really love and so did Forbes because they named it as top five business book of the year and she has also um authored two other books Reinventing You and Stand that I thoroughly recommend so welcome Dory to a virtual London today
1: Grace, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with this august panel of experts and uh, everyone in attendance. Thanks for having me.
0: No worries. Um, And next we have um, Dowson Fizma, who is an independent board director known for business transformation and access to opportunity. Um, He has had senior roles in RSA Insurance, Virgin Media, Orange, Procter & Gamble, and four startups. And Daushan is also the the director of the Board of Apprentice Global, of which we have a lot of discussions. About social mobility. So, Dowshan, I just want to take an opportunity to welcome you or welcome back to the LSE as one of our alumni.
2: Thank you, Grace. And um, it's always good to be back at the LSE, even in this virtual setting, Um, though I'm not in my favourite place, the brunch bowl, um, which used to be my home for three years, many years ago. Well, well, well,
0: welcome nonetheless. Um, Conson Consen Locke, who is a colleague of mine at the LSE in the management department. She is a professor who is really uh, appreciated by her students for her teaching on leadership and organizational behavior. Um, She has also had a prior successful career in industry that I think she will talk about a little bit about tonight, about navigating between industry and academia. I'm really thrilled that Constance actually has a new book coming out called Making Your Voice Heard, which will reach your shelves on 4th of March, which uses research on power and influence to help people speak up to those who have more power than they do. So, Constance, I don't feel that I have to welcome you, but nonetheless, it's obligatory. So welcome to the LSE.
3: Thank you so much, Grace. And thank you so much for plugging my book. I really appreciate it.
0: And <laughs> um, I'm now turning to Simon, who will have a book, I believe, but it's too early to talk about the title sometime next year. And, and he has a book as he is also an award-winning coach and motivational speaker. You know, I've seen him loads of times in Sky News. I've seen him on BBC. He's been on Forbes. And he also goes to um, some of the most successful companies in the world, like Virgin, Unilever, Salesforce and Microsoft coaching their employees. So again, Simon, and you're an alumni so welcome back to um, LSE.
4: Grace thank you so much for the kind welcome and um, what a pleasure to be alongside some fantastic individuals today.
0: And last but not least, Helen Tupper, welcome to the LSE. Uh, So far as I know, you're not an alumni, but you're still a very fantastic person nonetheless. You are the co-founder and CEO of Amazing If, which is an award-winning career development company that has a mission to make work better better for everyone. So really speaking to inclusion, which is core to my heart. You're the co-author of the Sunday Times number one bestseller, The Squiggly Career, which I absolutely love. And of course, you host the UK number one careers podcast, which is Squiggly Careers. If you don't know about them, do tune in um, welcome Helen to the LSC.
5: Thank you. And maybe I'm not alumni yet. So, like yet. Yes. There's, there's a lot of chance for me to do to do yes. that. still. So. and we
0: have an expanding market and executive degrees that Constant and I can talk to you about <laughs> <laughs> I so much. So yes. It. Um, but yeah, I just want to I want to get started by asking um, each of you a question and I'm going to start with Dory. Um, so Dory, if you look at the labour market here in the UK and also in the US, it's really tough right now. So I wanted to get the takeaway key pieces of advice that you would give to individuals who are thinking about becoming an entrepreneur as a way to earn a living for the first time in the middle of this pandemic.
1: Absolutely, Grace. Thank you very much. It, it's true. I mean, obviously, these are incredibly challenging circumstances, and they're ones that, that I can relate to personally, at least in a small way, because for me, my, my very first job, if we're sort of, you know, going back to my youth, I was a newspaper reporter, and I managed to get laid off for my very first job on Monday, September 10th. 2001. And so I woke up the next morning all ready to go job hunting, and it was uh, really not the time, really not the time to go job hunting. And so I think for a lot of people who are in this pandemic, um, it's, it's just an extraordinarily stressful circumstance with entire industries decimated. So if people are looking for entrepreneurial uh, careers or, or side income streams, this is actually a fantastic time to do it. I think that one of the most important things that I want to say about it, that I've discovered over my years of researching this and writing about this question, is that I think that fundamentally, the conversation that we have about entrepreneurship or creating uh, side gigs or side ventures is is a bit flawed. Because it is often a language of risk. Oh, you know, you're taking the leap. You're jumping off the cliff. All of these things make it sound extraordinarily dangerous, and I think that that actually it creates the wrong impression for people in a couple of ways. One is that sensible people don't want to do dangerous things. Surprise, surprise. Uh, so it discourages a lot of people. The other uh, problem. Is that I think it, it, uh, it encourages the wrong thinking, even among people who actually are uh, deciding to, to become entrepreneurs. The whole point, I believe, of entrepreneurship is not about really embracing risk. It is about de risking yourself, it's about risk mitigation. There is almost nothing you can do to make yourself more secure in the current economy than to create multiple revenue streams. I mean, it's like legs of a table, right? If you have one and it gets cut off, you're screwed. But if you have four or five, you are fine. You barely even notice. So I think the crucial thing is to say, look, if you want to start an entrepreneurial side venture, it does not require venture capital, not at first, for sure, sometimes never. It doesn't require a lot of money. It doesn't require a lot of risk. What it requires is finding the smallest possible way to test and validate your idea. There's nothing in the world stopping you on your Saturdays and Sundays from helping somebody out for free. And if it actually works well saying, Hey, well, you know, if you like it, would you be willing to give me a referral? Would you be willing to give me a testimonial? And that is how you begin to, to validate the product market fit and get the, the head of steam that you need to begin doing it for money. But it, it doesn't take a big infrastructure. It doesn't take anything other than just testing it a little bit in small ways and keeping that process going. So, that you can develop something to make you much more resilient in the marketplace.
0: Do you think, Joy, that some of the legacy that you've spoken about, this idea of associating risk with entrepreneurship, comes from our association with entrepreneurs, but they actually end up employing a lot of staff who they have to pay wages for? And I think your book Entrepreneur New does, does kind of a great job in dismantling that myth as well, this idea that it can actually be just you as an entrepreneur earning a living.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, if if our concept of, of entrepreneur is someone who is you know taking on funding, building some kind of massive enterprise, then it, it creates a picture in people's minds that really is very different. And and of course, you know, I mean, God bless him, but you know, Richard Branson's part of the problem here, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, what is an entrepreneur? Well, they have to be in a hot air balloon. That's what an entrepreneur is. I mean, no, this let's let's say now um, you do not have to go in a hot air balloon if you want to be an entrepreneur that is strictly optional um, so yes I, I think that you know we can really expand this out. I am a big fan of solo entrepreneurship um, if you know it's it's about whatever you're called to do right but i've managed to build a multi seven figure business as the only employee. This is completely possible, and i I think that if more people recognize that you don't have to be taking on huge financial risk, it's, it's just about mitigating it so you can maximize the upside.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. And Helen, let's turn to you because there will be people who are listening today who don't want to become entrepreneurs, but they want to keep moving forward in a squiggly line, in the words of your book, in their careers during the pandemic. What advice do you have for them?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And just before I go on to that, I am, um, I completely agree with everything that Dory said, because, um, that has been my experience actually about, uh, I started a side project eight years ago, not really with the intention of becoming my job. And it, and it just happened to over time. And everything that sort of Dory said then has rung true in my career, but onto this point of squiggly and squiggling. Um, so what, let me, let's just do what is a squiggly career? And then what does it mean to kind of own your squiggle in a squiggly career? And um, so a squiggly career is a career that is marked by, uncertainty ambiguity and lots of change it is the reality for many of us in work today um, a lot of us were sort of sold the staircase or the idea of the ladder that work was you know predictable we'd show up and go up a ladder and our success would be marked by grades and levels and promotions and that we'd get to the top and then we'd be successful and it's just not the reality of work today it's, work isn't predictable it's not linear it is uncertain it is ambiguous Everyone doesn't want to develop in the same direction in the same way. So squiggly is about people taking advantage of the opportunities of all of that change and ambiguity and being able to own their development and have a career that is as individual as they, as they are. And it's not, it's not always easy to do all of that stuff because that takes quite a lot of effort and actually takes quite a lot of action, but it is, it's totally possible. And so if I was going to say, well, how, how can someone squiggle how do they own own their squiggle Um I think the first thing is you have to accept the uncertainty so if you are putting your energy into trying to control like all that uncertainty it's in the wrong place like it, it's the world of work is unpredictable it's just the, the way it is but there are some things that are in your control and I think it's about shifting your energy to to those things and um, so I think the first thing it's funny when we're talking about learning and becoming an alumni um I think one of the things that is in your control is what and how you learn and being a continual learner is a quote that I love from, um, a futurist. Which I think it's the coolest job title ever, but a futurist called, um, Alvin Toffler, who says that the illiterate of the 21st century won't be those that cannot read and write, but those that cannot learn, unlearn and relearn. And I think thinking of that, you know, what am I learning? What do I need to unlearn? What assumptions might I be operating with that might hold me back? And what might I need to relearn? Because I don't know the tech has changed or the way I'm working has changed I think have yourself a learn unlearn and relearn list and invest time in it would be that's one thing that you can definitely take control of Um I think the second thing something Dory mentioned as well but I think about how you help how you help people like we in my business we talk about everyone's everyone's a learner and everyone's a teacher like in squiggly careers it should be democratized like we could all help each other and I think thinking about what strength what's you know what problems have people got that my strengths could solve we call that being a strength solver but th- thinking about how can I proactively help people to learn develop improve deliver just go go build relationships not based on who you know but how you help I think that is a an amazing way of building your network and taking control um, and then I think the last thing would be thinking about how you stand out because lots of things change in a squiggly career the way we're working, where we're working, who we're working with, but actually your strengths can stick with you. And it's one of the things that you can take with you as you're transitioning around in all of your squiggliness, those things that you stand for and you stand out for can have such a huge amount of power and can, create opportunities and you know, new possibilities for you that you might not have expected or, or planned for because your strengths are kind of creating them for you. So yeah, learning how you help people and thinking about how your strengths stand out would be my advice for people who are thinking about taking ownership in the squiggliness.
0: Can we stick with unlearning for a second, Helen? Because you know, I've, I've been interested in this in quite a while and I, and, I, and I always say to my students and anyone who will listen, the easiest way to unlearn is actually to have a network that's very, very diverse um that really has kind of different perspectives to what you hold so you can figure out what you actually might have to work on and, and, and what you might have to unlearn do you agree with that and, and do you think that there are benefits from really focusing on creating a diverse network rather than just a broad network if you want to squiggle along in your career
5: um, yes so i'll maybe talk two points on this so uh diverse networks yeah really important um and also I think like really attractive like why wouldn't you why wouldn't you want a network of people who know different things that you can learn from I think the most accessible way we can tap into learning is through people because they're like shortcuts for our curiosity they've done like the hard work for us all we have to do is ask questions that get, get all their insights and um, yeah I'm also I really like what Matthew Syed says around this point so he talks about um the importance of cognitive diversity so and In organizations in particular, when you have lots of cognitive diversity, so we know lots of different things because of the people we know and things we've learned, we create collective intelligence. So I see this, this organization where people are learning from each other in different ways inside the companies and outside the companies and this cognitive diversity creating collective intelligence means we can solve problems that we've never faced before i think that's amazing the other just like one thing that always sticks with me about um unlearning is this idea of the backwards bike uh which is in a, a ted talk on adaptability really good ted talk um and uh i was reminded of a book i was reading at the weekend by tom vanderbilt on beginners mindset and anyway the idea is we've all become quite accustomed to doing certain things like you know how you use zoom the apps you use on your phone the way that you write your to-do lists we've all just kind of become ingrained in ways of working and riding a bike is one of those ways and so somebody created a backwards bike where every time they got on the bike and they turn the bike left the bike goes right and it takes and because it's it's we almost don't realize how ingrained it is. You basically have to relearn how to ride the bike and it's really hard, but the benefit of being a beginner is you see things in a completely different way because you become conscious. And I think, I think almost going through your week and saying, what have I become unconscious about? Like, The way that I write the way that I talk the way that I run a session what have I just do unconsciously and how could I go back to being a beginner and it might be using tech in a different way or take a different role in a meeting I think where's the backwards bike in your working week I think is another another way that you can unlearn a little bit
0: I really love that thank you Um, Simon I'm going to come to you and continue the conversation on soft skills to the extent that unlearning can be seen as a soft skill There's lots of focus on on soft skills with economists at the moment. And we've spent a lot of time showing that cognitive skills pay off in the labour market. But actually, when you interact various soft skills, social skills being one of them, you get this kind of big wage premium. And people throw around the idea of soft skills as if we all have this unified definition of what's actually important. So I think it's a really great question for you to ask you which soft skills you think people should actually be honing and how they can actually go about doing that.
4: Sure, great. Well first of all, I think soft skills are so important. I think Dory and Helen have really touched on in some respects, how these can influence what we can achieve and affect our mindset. Uh, there was something I shared in the presentation recently when I said to an audience of corporate professionals that IQ might get you employed, IQ might get you promoted, but a lack of EQ can get you fired and hold you back from fulfilling your potential. Soft skills, it's not really about what work we do, but it's about how we work. And that's where they come into play. And if I had to pick three uh, soft skills to share with you today, uh, they would be pitch people pivotability. So three Ps there for you to remember. Uh, The first is pitch, whether you realize it or not, Uh, You are pitching every single day, whether that is your ideas, whether it's pitching yourself for promotion, uh, whether it's pitching yourself as the ideal candidate for a new job offer. We're pitching ourselves every single day. What we don't realize is that you can have the greatest ideas, you can have the greatest vision, uh, the greatest uh, solutions, but it becomes meaningless if you don't have that ability to communicate it to others to articulate it in a way that is compelling and that inspires people to follow or to buy into what you're sharing. In 2012, for example, Grace, Brian Stevenson took to the stage of TED and he shared an 18-minute talk entitled We Need to Talk About an Injustice. And in those 18 minutes, he shared just three stories. One about his grandmother, one about a janitor he met in the courtroom, and the third about Rosa Parks. And by the end of these 18 minutes, what happened is the audience contributed a combined $1 million into his nonprofit. Now, for the the math people amongst us here, that works out at an average of over $55,000 a minute that he spoke. And it shows the power of communication as a skill as a skill in sharing our ideas. Even billionaire Warren Buffett, he has one certificate in his office and he said it was the best hundred dollars I had ever spent in my self-education. And that was a certificate from the Daryl Carnegie Institute of Public Speaking. So our ability to pitch helps not just our career, but it helps others to buy into the ideas that we want to share. The second is people. You know, Helen touched on uh, diversifying the people we spend time with, the environment that we're around. For me, it's two elements here. One is environment, second is how we engage, how we build relationships. So on environment, it's literally the quickest way that you can succeed in any area of your life or business. Design an environment around you that makes it impossible not to succeed because as James Clear noted in his book, Atomic Habits, it is that invisible force that shapes your thinking and shapes what you see as possible. I mean, I remember when I entered my first mastermind group years ago, I felt literally like I was the dumbest person in that group. You know, I was just starting my business. I was doing a side gig, if you will, on my uh, the side of my daytime job, and I went along to this event, and I felt like the dumbest person there because all these people around me had already started businesses. They already chapters ahead of where i was but here's the thing that environment lifted my standards it showed me what was possible it broke the veneer of my possibility ceiling Yeah, i might have been thinking big before but i was now thinking galactic stratospheric and that was the power of the environment around me and that's why what happens is if you are the smartest person in the room if you're the most ambitious person in the room maybe you need a new room Because there's only so much you can grow if you already know everything within the circles you hang out with. Next is how are you engaging with people? Because you never get to the top alone. If you have a big vision, you need to have a team around you to make that possible. So how can you relate better to people? And it begins with this simple gift that so few of us get to experience, which is giving people the experience of feeling deeply listened to. Supported, appreciated. Now it starts at a people level, but when it goes to culture, imagine the potential for an organization in which its employees feel trusted, supported, and appreciated. It's incredible what can happen. The third P, pivotability. Darwin quote, I believe, it is not the strongest or most intelligent that survived, but it's the most adaptable. We've gone through challenges, we've gone through setbacks. We've gone through failure. We've gone through things we never expected over the last 12 months. But as we all get wiser, what we will come to realize is that it is not these things, it is not these things that matter in the grand scheme of things. It is how we choose to respond to them because in our response lies our greatest power. As Helen said just now, it's focusing on what you can control because when you focus on what you can't, you'll be paralyzed by overthinking. But when you focus on what you can, you become empowered to take action. And there's nothing quite like that feeling of momentum.
0: I really like that you actually changed my, my label of soft skills to the PPP. I did an experiment recently in company <laughs> where I, I recruited people into a course. In one, in, for, in one advert, it was called core skills, which are mm-hmm. the soft skills that you've just spoken about, Simon. And in the other, it was soft skills. And the difference, firstly, in the uptake across the two groups, was significantly more for the core skills, but many more men went into core skills. So I think PPP is really fantastic in two ways. It, it sums up what you want to say, but it also reminds me of purchasing power parity, which doesn't actually have the gender connotations that some skills have. But no, that's really that's really fantastic. And you know, I think you know what you say about kind of dealing with people really comes true in the old literature in economics and I've been doing some um, I've been doing some um, analysis of job flow adverts and one thing that's really coming out in the last year the words adaptability, mm-hmm. pivotability, resilience are what that's the soft skill that has gone up the most and what people have been asking for during the COVID pandemic and I think I stand with you that I think that's going to continue I think as mm-hmm. as, as a skill it's definitely worth honing So how do you want to give a couple of easy ways in which people who are listening might be able to kind of learn about these skills without spending extraordinary amounts of money?
4: Well, the great thing about the world we live in now, Grace, is that there is so much knowledge available to us. You know, we can go onto Google, we can go into YouTube, there's websites where you can learn courses to improve in some of these skills that we're exploring today, and It literally costs you nothing. There are free courses all around us. And as Helen said earlier, it's our ability to learn, to unlearn, to relearn, to adopt these skills that can help us move forward. You know, a term I love to use is adopting this white belt mentality. And that is simply because when you remain an eternal student, that gives you greater power to adapt. You know, you can't adapt with the knowledge on how to adapt. There's a Zen saying that says the student is so focused so rigidly focused on wanting to be a master on wanting the titles whereas the master has cultivated the art of remaining an eternal student it keeps your mind open to possibilities it keeps your mind open to learning from every conversation every book every conference every course every video every podcast you listen to and so I think it's to tune into how can you learn what is most important what is what are your curiosities telling you That you would like to learn, start there. And once you build that first of learning, just see where it takes you. But you have to start somewhere.
0: Thank you so much. Um, Conson. I think it's quite apt that um, Simon mentioned pitching um, because I'm going to talk to you about people who are feeling stressed in work right now and they might be actually feeling that they're not being heard. And specific advice that you could actually give to them to make sure that they do get heard and and their career continues to advance despite the uncertainty that we're living through.
3: Cool, thank you, Grace. Um, So I didn't realize until I heard Helen speak, but I've had a squiggly career. Uh, I, I never heard that term before, but I, I started out in nonprofits, and then I went into management consulting as a consultant, and then I moved on to training and development within management consulting, and then I came into academia. And so one of the things, um, I think one of the reasons I am so interested in what I teach, which is I, I teach leadership, but I'm, I'm very interested in how we speak up to people who have more power than us not how we speak down. I mean, if you're the boss, it's pretty easy to kind of get people to listen to you. But if you're the person who has less power, how do you get people to listen to you? Um, and this is something that I noticed, like even in when, when I was teaching in management consulting, we were teaching something called upward management. And upward management was um, how, do you, how do you kind of push back on your boss? How do you negotiate with your boss? Um, and there were a lot of people who were just uncomfortable with this idea, but there were also other people who were like, oh, yeah, I do that already. And so this, this is what I find really interesting. Um, and I think one of the things, one of the first things is to realize that just because you're not in a position of power doesn't mean you, you won't be heard. You know, just because you're not in a position of power doesn't mean you don't have power. Um, and that's, that's kind of, it's a mindset kind of thing. Now, the way I talk about this. So, I mean, the book is called making your voice heard, which is all about, you know, speaking up, but, and the way I talk about it in the book is there's the external and the internal. So the external, I'm only going to say one thing about the external here, which is the face you show the world. Um, when you're in an online environment, there are two things you need to think about that you don't normally think about in an in-person environment. One is lighting and the other is sound quality. We don't think about those, we're not directors, but in an online environment, you have to worry about it. Like notice the lighting, where is the lighting coming from? Am I you know, am I lit up properly? And sound quality, so these headphones, I invested 150 pounds in these last year. I think it was last summer and it was like the best investment ever considering how much online training I've been doing, how much online teaching I've been doing. Um, Because when people can hear you properly, they're more likely to listen to you. So um, and try this like people who haven't invested in headphones. Try this. I did this with one of my colleagues where I spoke to him without headphones and then I put on the headphones and he was like, whoa, that's like a huge difference. Okay, I'm investing in headphones now. So those are the two things to think about in terms of the external. But the internal, I think, is the really important thing right now because we're isolated we're under stress, we've got all these negative emotions, we're frustrated, we're feeling powerless. And so I call this the voice in your head. There's a voice in your head that can help you or it can undermine you. And especially for people who are living alone, the voice in your head is a lot louder now because there's nobody around you saying anything. You're living alone. So this voice in your head has the whole stage. And The voice in your head. So think about what is the voice in my head saying to me? And how can I change that? And the way to change, I call it a trigger. The way to change to a new trigger is to think about the situation, but also to find a positive feeling associated with the new trigger. So I'll give you some examples. So say you've got a presentation coming up. And the voice in your head is saying, I'm terrible at online presentations. I'm really bad at this. I'm so nervous. You know, the way to change that, you could say to yourself, the information I have to give is really important. So you've got this positive feeling of like need or urgency, like I have to give people this information. Or you could say. Um, this information will really help my audience. And so there's this feeling of like caring for the audience. And so this is how you kind of shift. So you're not focused on your fear and nervousness anymore. You're focused on the positive. Um, And one more example. So imposter syndrome, if you've just been promoted and you're sitting in a meeting and you're thinking to yourself, I am the least experienced person in this room. I know nothing compared to all these people. Okay, you can change that voice to say something like, I bring a fresh perspective. You know, you look at the the age difference between you and the other people. I bring a fresh perspective. They need this youthful perspective. Or I'm speaking up for an underrepresented group. I'm the only woman in the room, or I'm the only Chinese person in the room. I'm speaking up for an underrepresented group. And that gives a positive feeling as well. So this is what I think... I would urge people to think about is what is that voice in your head saying to you and how can you change it to something more positive?
0: I love this concept, the idea of of changing your own narratives, I think it's really important to get you to do things that you didn't always do. I talk to people about the spotlight effect, I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's it's this bias in behavioural science that shows that when something happens, so if we make a fool of ourselves, we fluff our lines, if we make a mistake, if we slip on a banana skin, that actually very few people notice. And the reason that they give is because those people are all caught up in their own lives and wondering what their image is like, which is projected out. And for me, it's actually quite freeing, so it means that... Actually, when I mess up, nobody's really paying paying much um, paying much attention, which is really fantastic. Yes. Um, so yes, so I'm going to move lastly to Daushan, Um and I'm going to ask you probably the hardest question of all, Doushan. Um, so there's a lot of people who don't have an easy road to success because they don't fit the usual mode. And Constance has spoke, I think, very well about how to get them to speak up when they're in the company. But there are other obstacles. Um, so despite them having skills, tangibility, we still see, for example, huge wage gaps between women here in the UK. We see big wage gaps between black workers, Asian workers and minority ethnic workers. Sadly, we're seeing that those gaps have actually widened during the COVID pandemic. So I guess like a really kind of tough question is what advice do you give people who really feel that they're being held back? And it is true that they're being held back. It's not just a perception so that they can continue moving forward in their career.
2: Thanks, Grace. Like The spotlight effect has, has come straight on me now with that. And I guess um, it's a hard question, but it's a real question. I, I, I probably have to be a bit of a prophet of doom here in the sense that When we're talking about career management, we need to understand our audience. Who are we talking to? Are we talking to the rather privileged folk that may be around here on the panel or listening in? Privileged, whether it's because of our background, because of our education, because of our income. And um, certainly with COVID, we've we've come to a position where we've questioned a lot of things. Who are our key workers in society? Are they the masters of universe and bankers that we churn out at the LSE? Or are they the gentlemen who just knocked on my door a few minutes ago to deliver something, the grocery my wife and I went to this morning, our workers in the NHS and our teachers, who are our key workers? When we're talking about squiggly careers and career management, does it apply to the average British person? We've got to remember in the UK, the average British worker is earning £29,000 a year not a week, not a month. So when we put that into context, the challenges that the average person faces is quite significant. So that's why I say, who is our audience? Who are we talking to here? Because the mass of the British public, over 60 70%, are challenged and are going to be more challenged on many counts, financial, physical health, and definitely mental health. So what we say, we need to sort of temper to the audience that they don't have the levels of privilege that a small percentage of us do whether it's privilege of birth or as you're inferring your question privilege of some of our physical characteristics with that I just want to pick up one point that that Constance said and I think framing Constance is absolutely right framing is key Um, and Grace you'd obviously know with your your behavioural science background framing can be everything here but framing also comes with a degree of privilege. Follow your passion. I work with a lot of underestimated groups. They've got side gigs, but they've got three, four jobs just to put food on the table for their kids. And this is common even here in London. And that's not, I'm following my passion. It's, I just need to feed my kids, says a single parent. University graduates who've got no extracurricular activities because they've had to support siblings. How do they move forward in a situation now where graduate employment prospects are being decimated? So framing is key, but also we as gatekeepers, we need to change our framing. I spoke with um, a, a master's student who was, who was telling me about their, their background and the fact that they didn't have examples of leadership problem solving, et cetera, to, to take to interview. But when she took me through her background of having to, tutor her younger siblings work jobs to support her parents her mother i should say i looked at her and said what do you mean you've got no examples of leadership problem solving resilience you've got far better examples than the elite folk that i that i interviewed coming out of you know universities like the lse artsbridge etc framing is key but we as gatekeepers also need to better frame and i love what constant was saying about you know just being heard, we as gatekeepers also need to listen better. And I say, I say often, we need to institutionalise listening and listen to all of these target audiences, particularly those who are underestimated, which is the vast majority of folk, whether it's disabled folk, ethnic minorities, those from different social backgrounds, those that haven't had the pleasure of growing up in in a wealthy household, and the wealth threshold in the UK is not very high which surprises people. So hate to bring reality back into this play, but when we start looking at career management and post-COVID world, it's going to be challenging for so many underestimated segments of our population. How do they move forward? Is probably going to be your follow-up question. I think to be heard, I, we have a responsibility as gatekeepers to hear them, to take their lived experience and reflect that and act upon it but also to recognise their challenges and to be able to frame them so that their challenges of resilience, their challenges of coping with family trauma, we can see where that links into our workplace challenges as well. I don't need you to have set up a million pound business or to have organised a university May ball. The fact that you have kept your family afloat, the fact that you have supported your siblings, is as valid an experience as anything else, which you can bring into any working environment, end off. So I think being able to recognise those challenges, particularly of underestimated populations, and then I think, as you're asking the, the obvious gaps, when we talk about gender disparity in the UK, a gap, we talk about the chasm of ethnic disparity, and particularly with, within ethnic disparity, With the black population in the UK. We talk about the chasm for those that are disabled, whether it's visible disabilities or invisible disabilities here in the UK. And the one that we always put under the carpet, those from a different social background who haven't had the privilege of growing up with parents that had just above average income, and possibly even a small house that that gives them the opportunity to take risks to be an entrepreneur. And these are the privileges we have to recognise. So in a post-COVID world, we as gatekeepers, we, as those in in the media as well, need to be able to reflect these privileges, be honest and authentic about them. And I know the term levelling up is used a lot at the moment in government circles, but as part of that, we need to recognise those privileges And with a sense of equity, allow those that aren't fortunate or those who are underestimated to have access to opportunity. And I think that's how we can move forward, that the onus, we need to turn the lens. It's a bit like I say with gender, gender disparity. Why am I focusing on the women? No, I'm the problem as a gatekeeper. Put the spotlight on me because the women are already there. Why am I focusing on the ethnic minorities? The talent is there, the opportunity is not. I am the roadblock to opportunity as a gatekeeper. So we just need to turn the spotlight onto the gatekeepers, and we need to support those who are underestimated.
0: So Simon commented on the idea of democratizing education. And is is that what you would like to, to see as well, Dasha, in the idea of kind of leveling out opportunities that people have access to the type of educations as and when they need it? And you've mentioned leveling up, which is the UK skills agenda. And I think that's the idea behind it, right? That, that the financial barriers are taken down from, from getting education. And also the age at which we pursue education kind of along this theme of continuous learning is moved away so do you see that as one of the solutions to the issues that you've just raised
2: that that is part of the solution but again you can have all the education but you need to have the opportunity yeah you know evident exhibit pay the vast number of women who graduate from university and the, the percentage difference compared to men is is double digits from gcse a level university and even into professional exams and yet mind the gap to those women going into the professional workplace. So it's equality of opportunity as opposed to access in terms of education. So yes, education will help you get thus far, but then I think we had the discussion earlier on about soft skills and the importance of soft skills or recognizing the value of lived experience. And when I say lived experience, I go back to the underestimated populations. Those who have overcome adversity due to their disability, their ethnicity, their financial circumstances, the vast majority of people not that privileged 10 percent um and then one thing that helen mentioned about um i think you have talking about curiosity as well or learning but that joy of being curious i have a five-year-old daughter here who may burst any time but why 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 that yeah, can drive you off sometimes but that thirst for knowledge that joy of curiosity and learning so i think in terms of leveling up you've got three four Three factors there the sign referring to is democratizing education That's what i talk about in terms of opportunity and us as gatekeepers recognizing and providing more of that and what was being mentioned in terms of um, curiosity and learning those so I mean, are the factors in play
0: and we've and we've spoken about this before but i won't labor the point but i i do think when people are are trying to access opportunities there needs to be some way, or there needs to be some second look for people who have overcome obstacles to get to particular achievements because it does show a tenacity um, on a CV in the same way that we would take into account some of the other soft skills that we spoke about earlier. Um, so, questions are starting to come in. Um, so, one of the questions is we had, we had um, a talk about mean reversion, the idea that when I surround myself with people who are better than me, I think Simon, you brought this up first. That I do end up actually doing better myself, so we shouldn't be scared to be in the room for high achievers. And Steve Robbins is asking, how can we make that possible for people who might have only seen um, high achievers on TV? So how can we get exposure to high achievers if we're sitting in the audience today? Does anyone want to take that? I'm looking at you, Simon, through the. I'm looking at you through, <laughs> the, through, through the camera, but you can't tell. Do, do you
4: want to have a go? Yeah, no, I think when you do think about environment, don't just uh, focus on physical people you're spending time with. Uh, Your environment encompasses, you know, you said people you see on TV, but the books you read, the magazines you read, what you listen to, the conversations you have. There's a lot of different things that go into your environment, even the physical environment you're, you're in. Uh, so, when I first started my journey, you know, books were the only source uh, for me to surround myself with thinkers who were at a much advanced age than I was and There was another tool that I used uh, a lot in the early days I still do today, but to a lesser extent given obviously my my uh, you know, my position has changed but back in the early days, what I used to do is I would sit down, close my eyes, and I would visualize this sort of virtual uh, imaginary boardroom meeting where I would go into this Uh, boardroom there'll be a table there'll be four individuals sat around this table and they would be the sort of people that at the time I could never see myself surrounding myself with but I would imagine myself being with them on this table and what that allowed me to do was to see problems see challenges from different perspectives so I would go around this table and one by one look at them and say what advice do you have for me for this challenge or this idea or this decision that i'm trying to make that i'm putting out in front of you for him and i would use that as a way to imagine myself around these sort of people before i actually had that access so don't let the fact that you don't have access to physically be with these people stop you uh use it as a a chance to get creative you know you can use limitations uh, to elevate your creativity
0: if i I was to add one thing i think reach out as well i think reach out to people Mm. you know people email me all the time and i get back to everybody it it might take a couple of days but i do get back to everybody so if you see people who you're interested in what they're thinking um Mm. do reach out and 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 ask them for connections and it might be some of the material that simon just described that they can recommend or you might have a one-on-one with that person which could be very useful to you uh dory did i see
1: a hand You did. Thanks, Grace. Uh, so I wanted to just share two strategies. Um, the first one, it's actually something that I, uh, that I talk about in, in this book. It was my second one, Stand Out. Something that, um, I, I think is a really amazing democratizing force that has, uh, become much more of an option for almost anybody in the past, you know, I mean, technically 15 years, but especially the past five or so is starting a podcast. Um, it, it's kind of amazing because Anybody anybody can do it. They can start a podcast or they can start a video live stream show and uh, invite guests. And if you are providing someone with an opportunity to be reaching a larger audience, even if it's not yet that huge of an audience, um, a surprising number of people will say yes to that. Maybe not the most famous people in the universe, but certainly Uh. people who are more famous than you are. And it gives you an opportunity to connect with them and Engage on an intellectual level, so that's something that that I have uh, seen many times be very effective. The other grace, just to build on your point about reaching out, so I think sometimes we have to just be, you know, really unbowed uh, in in the face of things. So Stever, uh, Stever and I actually met at a conference called uh, Renaissance Weekend, which is a sort of ideas conference that was founded. 30 plus years ago by uh, a gentleman who was the former US ambassador to the court of St. James. And it's, you know, this very cool conference, this very sort of elite invitation only conference. And when I was in my 20s, I wanted to go to this conference. I did not know anyone who went to it. And so I, you know, I see on the website invitation only. And I'm like, well, you know, too bad and so I wrote them a letter and I'm like hi I understand this is invitation only but he, let me tell you about me and here's why I would like to please request an invitation and would you believe they gave me one uh so sometimes you just have to go for it
0: I like that I, mean, I I think again the anticipation of rejection often holds people back masking in the way that you did their joy so you kind of anticipate being told no and what it will mean for your life but the person who might tell you no won't remember so i I think realizing that you know when you do ask the things the chances of being told yes are much much higher than what we we um we believe but secondly even if we're told no the chances of the person actually remembering are quite low might actually get people off off, off of this fear cycle i have a specific question um for um constant so it says spot on on radical candor will be essential kicking up kissing up to your bosses and kicking up to your bosses and kissing down to your subordinates. And then the question is, what headphones are you using? (laughs) I think what I'm taking from that is really great talk, but what headphones are you using? I'm really embarrassed that I don't have headphones either.
3: So go go for it. I've had a few. So I actually discovered this from someone else who I was like, wow, your sound quality is great. What headphones are you using? Um, And I had someone else ask me that too. It's called Jabra Evolve.
0: Well, I feel you should be, you pay paid commission because you have two sales concepts with that. <laughs> I two sales. Um, yeah, so now we're being asked what specific hard skills will be in high demand in the next decade and what skills will be the most important after the pandemic. So immediately after the pandemic and then in the next decade. I feel that I wrote this question myself because it's the question that the UK Skills Board are actually are, are, have been asked at the moment almost word for word. So I won't answer because it's not my time, but um, does anyone
2: want to start on that one? Skills. Dowsham. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's a great question, I guess, because we're living through this phenomenal time, um, challenging time of, of risk, challenge, uncertainty and ambiguity. You go, are our, our working methods, is our culture, are our leaders, dare I say it, fit for purpose? Um, I'll come out with an unequivocal no here. And I think the re- and the reason I say that and I, I state a strong position is the way, particularly. I'll be very. We got Dory um, from the States, but in the UK, I'll go as far as saying that our traditional board leaders and many of our executive committees, and again, I'm specifying this audience, are very traditional, are very linear, are very left brain. So we talk about a traditional leader or a traditional boardery re- leader. Having certain physical characteristics, but I'll go into that cognitive diversity, or something that I call diversity of poets: um, P perspective, O outlet, E experience. Can I spell T thought? Until I made it up. Double S sector and social background, and our, our leaders are traditionally quite narrow. They don't have that breadth of cognitive diversity or diversity of poets. And they're very linear and left brain. So in terms of what skills do we need coming out of very disruptive, you know, ambiguous, uncertain time, we need people who can understand, you can deal with uncertainty and ambiguity. And the skills that are missing around the table, and not just at the most senior levels, but across the board, I say, are skills of creativity, mm-hmm. being oblique in your thinking, the more right brain skills. So to answer that question, And there's no course that could probably teach you to be creative, oblique, and right brain, but we need to get more fat. I keep saying this: creativity, obliqueness, and right brain aspects to be brought to the fore. I think we'll see more of that because it can ask the questions that you wouldn't expect. It could give the answers that are not traditional, that aren't predictive from the past. And it's not just a case of. I'm trying to remember the LSE motto i think it's understanding the causes of things for my time there but we can't really look back to look forward with so much uncertainty and ambiguity i'm sure their professors are saying i definitely didn't teach dowsham but we can't <laughs> look back to move forward hence i think the skills that we need would be great creativity obliqueness and that you know passion for curiosity
0: I I agree with you, Josh. Um, The one thing that you said about there not being a course, you are right, And this is why we often say it shouldn't be taught in schools because we don't know how to teach creativity. We don't know how to teach curiosity. I would say we don't yet know how to teach it effectively because we haven't evaluated. And I'm optimistic in 10 years time, if I have you all back on, that our children, when they're in school, will be learning, you know, to be curious and creative. And you mentioned um, specifically about, you know, leaders of industry. Um, But Helen, I mean, I'm sure for lots of careers, The need to be curious the need to be creative and the returns to that is actually increasing
5: yeah it was really interesting actually when Simon was talking about this kind of shift from the iq to eq and which i totally totally agree with and i think now we are increasingly seeing the like the role of cq so your your curiosity quotient how curious are you and and i think that curiosity is a capability like i don't think it is a a nice to have i think it is a need to have and i think it's something that you should think about you know, how, how are you consciously developing your curiosity? What, what are you learning for the first time? Who are you learning from? And how are you making sure that that stuff isn't sort of samey and and stagnating, um, but also just to touch on this point around skills, because we then um, we recently did a podcast on transferable skills. Because I sometimes think that they get thrown out in reports, like just go develop some transferable skills, and your career is set for the future. And it's and you Google, you're like, okay, right? What are the what are the what are the transferable skills I need? And you get a report back: twenty one transferable skills that you need to develop. Communication, curiosity, creativity. like that's the whole career in itself. <laughs> like what I, where? And so I think. I don't think you should treat any of these lists, you know, LinkedIn LinkedIn do good ones. They do them every year. They do the top 10 hard skills, the top 10 soft skills. You can Google reports all over the place about them. I don't think you should treat them as tick lists because I I just think you'll end up generically developing a skill, to be honest, that might not be that useful for your career. Um, I think that you start with your, what we would call career possibilities or getting into some of the pivotability that sort of Simon was talking about. Um, Like what are the things that you're curious about in your career? Maybe it's teaching maybe it's um being as a student maybe it's working in retail or like what are the things that you're you're interested in exploring in your career and then use that as the lens that you look through all of these reports through so you know creativity for me in my job is about how I bring my thoughts to life how I use technology and social media to make all of the things that I do in careers useful and interesting for people that is very different from someone who works in operations or works in sales who they might have creativity might mean how they build relationships with people in a new way virtually and that's fine but I think don't start with the skills list or you'll just drown in them to be honest start with the things that you're interested in exploring in your career and use that as a filter so that you can make these lists more relevant more specific more useful for you.
0: Fantastic, so I'm gonna throw out a couple of questions and then you can put your hands up and and, and speak to to the two together if you like. So we've already been asked about um, kind of core skills, soft skills that we'll need. We have a separate question that's asking about hard skills that will be needed straight after the pandemic and 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then we have a really great question for asking for what's the panel's advice on over 50s reinventing themselves in a new career and navigating millennial age managers. So kind of thinking about workers who want to reinvent themselves um, over the age of 50 so skills in general and then Pacific to the over 50s um, who wants to who wants to start Dory can I can I come to you for entrepreneurs if I'm an entrepreneur I mean in some ways I feel the answer is going to be it's the same skills if you're 20
1: but but you 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 you, you tell us uh, you're, you're, you're teeing me up. Grace. This is great. Cause not, I, I do focus on entrepreneurship in part, but I also wrote a book about professional reinvention, uh, called reinventing you. Um, this is the best part of COVID for me is that I always have like props nearby. Uh, But anyway, uh, of course, it is a major consideration and concern for people over 50. How, you know, many times people feel like, well, you know, do I, do I have enough time or how do I establish myself? And of course, the, you know, the terrible feeling is that nobody wants to feel like they are moving backwards or that they're, you know, oh, I'm going to have to start over. You know, that's that's not something that is appealing to anyone. So I have two key thoughts that I'll share quickly. Uh, The first is that the good news is that by dint of the fact that you have, you know, whatever, 20, 30 years of professional experience, it is easy, I think, for us when we are in reinvention mode to dismiss that sometimes and just say, oh, well, you know, if I'm going to a new job or a new career, then I don't, you know, I don't have anything transferable. So like we kind of catastrophize. And the you know the the point of this is and I loved Helen's you know comments about like what are these transferable skills but I'll tell you you know some of the things that really are transferable one is your connections uh, another is the status that you have accrued by dint of the fact that you have you know done certain things risen to certain areas you know you 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 have different perspectives and lenses to bring to bear and it is true that most people they're sort of overloaded and they are frankly not that creative or useful when they are thinking about you and what you could bring. People are pretty literal. They're like, well, well, he's never worked in insurance, so what does he know? So it's on us to be the people to say, you know, to shape that narrative. We have to proactively shape that narrative and be able to help people understand. Usually they'll accept it if we help them with this, you know, to say, oh, well, you know, given my 25 years of experience working in advertising, um, I feel very fortunate that that I'm able to, you know, to bring this and this and this perspective, uh, which can illuminate different parts of, of this new industry. If you can help them see it, they will often say, oh, well, that's a really good point, but they won't come to it on their own. And then the second piece that I just want to mention for people, um, you know, 50 is a little bit of an arbitrary cutoff point, but let's, let's say people who are, you know, older, right. Uh, At a certain, uh, at a certain point, there might be a perception, you know, for for people on the more senior uh, age range that, uh, you know, people who, I mean, obviously, this is terrible, right? But people who are sort of like young and don't really think about these things might assume that you are not keeping up with stuff. And so it is really important to almost over index, if you are 50, but especially if you're in your 60s, if you're in your 70s, you need to be like, no mofo, I'm on clubhouse. Okay, join me in my clubhouse room. That is what we need to do so that you take it and you like drop the mic. And like, you know, you might think I don't even know how to log into my email. No, you know, like, let me show you. And when you do that, it's like, oh, it's resetting their cognitive expectations. And then they understand, oh, I can't make snap judgments about this person.
0: I love that kind of disrupting the stereotypes that people have, have applied to you. Um, Constant in the question, they they, they ask specifically mm-hmm. about millennial age managers and somebody mm-hmm. who's over fifty. Really, so the the tips that you gave to the audience are they static across the age distribution, or is there something specific about someone who's older being managed by somebody who's younger than them?
3: So I I was actually going to put up my hand to answer this because um, first of all I'm over fifty and I've made a lot of career moves. And when I um, went into management consulting, I was almost 30. And I was reporting to someone who was 24. So, um, you know, reporting to someone who's a lot younger than you. This is one thing I found. So I, I also joined academia when I was kind of in my mid-40s, early to mid-40s, and I was the same age as some of the senior professors and a lot older than the other people who were on my level. So a couple of things. I think, first of all, um, if you're going to make this kind of move, the, the hardest thing is ego. The hardest thing is being able to say, okay, in my previous job, so this is when I went into my PhD at around the age of 40. In my previous job, I had an assistant doing my photocopying. Now I've got to do the photocopying? Okay, that's fine, that's fine. You know, so it's, it's like that, that ego and that status thing. It's um, seeing yourself in a new identity. So you're reporting to someone who's a millennial, but you can't think of it that way. You're reporting to someone who knows more than you in this industry or who has more experience than you in this industry. But you bring something to the table, too. Because one of the things I found making all of these career moves um, at an older age than other people, it's the first few years. So I would say my first seven years at LSE were, were really difficult because I was junior in status, but much older than the people, you know, a lot of the very senior people. But then at some point, I made this step change. Because at some point, my previous experience suddenly counted. So I was, I got to the point where I was teaching leadership. And because I had so much previous experience, it made me a better teacher. I was bringing my experience into the classroom. And then suddenly, everyone's like, wow, you're really good at this. Okay, will you, will you teach leadership here? Will you teach this here? Um, And then at some point, you know, your previous experience kicks in. But you have to be patient up to that point. And you kind of have to swallow your pride a little bit up to that point. Um, but if you've, if you've really thought it through and you know you've made the right change, then it's just a matter of patience and kind of, you know, waiting it out. But yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard.
0: I think what you said is really relevant also for Mohammed, who is in Pakistan and asked a question to Helen and Dory, how can you justify taking a relatively junior position compared to your past experiences due to current circumstances? And this position is slightly different from the past career track. And I think everything that you said about ego and recognising that actually you mightn't be reporting into somebody who you traditionally had reported into, but they probably know more than you in the moment seems relevant. Mm -hmm. Do you, given it was it was directed to Helen and Joy, do you have any additional advice that you want to give to somebody who's who's squiggling down, going
5: going down the snake or squiggling down, Helen? Um yeah, absolutely absolutely. Um so the the first thing, and I think it checks on the other point as well as around we we call them like confidence gremlins. So like your limiting beliefs that you might have would be, I guess, the psychological term for it, and how they might hold you back. So if you're driven by your identity and you think like a limiting belief might be success only goes in one way <laughs> like if if you're carrying that thought with you through your career that success only goes in one direction then at some point you're going to get disillusioned and disappointed because you're probably going to go through a restructure get made redundant or get demoted or your role's going to get changed in scope it, it's, it's just the way it is and so i think thinking about a more limitless belief about i might not always feel like i'm progressing forward but i'm always I'm kind of always learning forward, or I'm always in control of my learning. Thinking about ways that you can reframe your thinking so that you're not attached to this negative thing that's going to hold you back is one thing. The other thing is it is exactly what you said. When you, a squiggle can sometimes be upwards, you know, you can still get promoted in a squiggly career. It can be a sideways move. It can sometimes be something that you might think of as going um, back, but don't don't think about going back as being like a demoted think about what can I learn how does this give me a new sense of perspective because you're also not going to stay there you're going to go somewhere else like your next job is very unlikely to be your last job even if you're retiring you're probably still going to be working in some way shape or form so I think stop thinking that all moves have to be upwards and that that is a sign of a good career I think the sign of a good career is someone that is resilient that invests in themselves that they are proactively learning and that is able to kind of move themselves and navigate themselves in a career. Um, And I think a lot of that to use that kind of framing word in a slightly different context that Alshon talked about earlier, I think a lot of that is about your own framing. So don't, don't go into this thinking, this is a demotion. This is not, this is, this is bad for my career. Think about this as, this is a different move that's going to help me to see the organization from a different perspective. What can I learn here that I didn't learn in the other role? How can I develop my skills in a different context that will mean I can use them in the role that I want to go on to next? It's, it's using it as an opportunity rather than it's seeing it as something that's going to hold you back um, that, will, that will, will help you the most. And it's not it won't be just this role, a move that it helps you for. It will be the next and the one in three moves time and the one in seven moves time. It, it's, it's just the nature of squigginess.
0: And I think as well, Helen, what you describe on is is, is almost changing the narratives. So it, it, it kind of protects your well-being as well. Because I guess if you're always seeing the step as something backward and something that's beneath you, going through your day-to-day in that, you're going to be quite unhappy. So what you describe, I think, is good for the future, but also good for the present with respect to um, kind of protecting your well-being. Dushin, did I see a hand?
2: Yeah, I just want to add to that because I uh, following the chat as well. And the question about the older working population versus millennials, we, we see a lot in, in, in two of my organizations, in fact. And I guess I love what um, I think Constance, you were saying about, and I think you quoted my previous experience counted when you were referring to your, your time at the LSC. And Dory, you were talking about status, experience, and networks. What I love is when we speak to some of these, the older population, it is their status, their experience, the networks counting. And we've seen case studies where we've met, managed to, to match those who think they're past it, but they've got such rich experience and networks, they've been able to contribute to startups, to ventures, to civil society here in the UK, their ex- previous experience counted. And in terms of creativity, they've been able to bring creative thinking through, I'm going to call it an, an old Crutcher and gamble term, but search and reapply. And Dora, you you mentioned about insurance. And there's one example where you just brought somebody in from entertainment to work with an insurance company and focus on customer service. And the insurance executive are sitting there going, well, what has this got to do with insurance? Well, you want to deliver outstanding customer service. Don't ask somebody else in insurance. Ask somebody who's been delivering it, making people smile in entertainment. And sure enough, we just have these great sessions and a, pe- a large piece of work came out of it that focused on transferable learnings because of the experience, not in the sector, but just in that capability that this different person who happened to be odd as well bought in. And it was such creative thinking for those in this traditional world of insurance. So I think, you know, what, what's being said by Johnson here, Dorian Helen, you're absolutely correct. Bringing in that previous experience. Can add so much value and the two questions that i saw in the chat that population group has so much more to offer a in terms of framing b our skatekeepers being open to that and providing the opportunity and then c seeing the value of that transferable experience to current problems given what they've experienced you know in their own background.
0: Simon, can I come back to you about the P um, of, for people in your, in, your, in your triple P? So Constance basically talked about kind of at a time in her career where she was relating to somebody who was younger than her and recognising that they actually had a lot to offer. And earlier, Dowson talked about the fact that gatekeepers need to start kind of recognising that there are other people who can add value to the company? Who are much more diverse than what what potentially that they were hiring before. And when 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 and comes, were we're talking, I've, I've been thinking about humble leadership, the kind yeah. of the rise in this idea of kindness. So when you're doing coaching, do you actually coach the leaders to really look for talent in different ways and to give opportunities perhaps to people that they didn't necessarily give before? And what and what do you think about this rise or, or this call for humble leaders?
4: Sure. Well, well, first of all, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with both leaders and those in more junior positions. Uh, and in terms of what we cover, it's, as you can imagine, different from client to client. Uh, but I think in terms of people looking at it from both perspectives, I mean, Dory touched on earlier about reaching out to people, not being afraid of a note. And I think one of the ways that we can do that more effectively when we think about people, because, you know, remember, we don't get to the top alone. Often it's from uh, help from others, it's mentorship from others, uh, One of the ways we can do that is by understanding what is important to the people that we want to reach out to. Uh, You you know, I remember when I was running a mastermind a few years ago, uh, I saw someone that I'd followed for a while on social media. uh, And this person was a co-founder of HelloFresh, which has gone on to become, you know, one of the biggest meal delivery companies in the world. And I saw that this individual shared that he was about to launch a new book. And I simply sent a message in his direct messages and say, I see you're about to launch a new book. How about I invite you down to speak to my group of people? I would get them all to read your book ahead of time. So you get a bulk order come through for you, which will help in sales. And in return, you can speak and you can sign their books for them. And within three, four hours, he responded and said, when should we do it? Uh, so what happens is when we think about people, we've got to realize they're all human, just like we are. Uh, So we've got to understand what is important to them that can tailor the conversation, tailor the approach we take to make that possible. Uh, And now when we think of the other side, we've got to realize that when you are in leadership positions, it's no longer about how good you are at what you do. It's about how good you are about bringing people together so the entire team flourishes, Uh, You know, Google conducted this study back in 2008 called Project Oxygen, and they wanted to understand what made leaders particularly great in their organization. And you might be wondering, well, why would Google spend so much money on an internal project to see what made great leaders? And that's because the team that had the biggest issues between junior members and those in leadership positions was the engineering team. And that's one of the biggest departments that is in Google. And what they found through the study they conducted for over a year is that technical ability for leaders was ranked as the least effective in being a great leader. What was number one was their ability to coach, was their ability to coach greatness out of the people that they were responsible for managing. So when we think about leadership and when I work with leaders, great, it's understanding not just how they can evolve, how they can be better leaders, but how they can create an environment in which others can also step up and demonstrate leadership.
0: I think some of what you said as well kind of reminds me of this idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you, if you, if you have somebody who doesn't believe in themselves, mm. having somebody believe in them, I think you mentioned parents in the, in the beginning and then you finalised on managers. And I think that's quite apt. You know, I think managers do have the duty, actually, to pick people and to invest in them and really believe in them, even at times where the people that they're managing don't necessarily believe in themselves and to kind of get over those humps. Um, We've had a really kind of interesting question about information overload and somebody is really feeling that um, they're overloaded and their brain is filling up very quickly during the COVID-19 pandemic. And they're asking, what are the key things the panel feel that the audience should force themselves to unlearn going forward? So unlearning. So Helen, you mentioned the word unlearning. So if you were to pick one or two things that are topical yeah. to, and I guess it's it's going to be individual differences as well, isn't it? With this, there isn't one answer, but yeah. things that you would like the audience to contemplate on learning.
5: Um, yeah. So to contemplate unlearning, uh, getting everything done because it's impossible. Like, so don't don't set that expectation for yourself because there's just it's it's never ending. So um, we actually have got our podcast this week is on overwhelm is how to cope with overwhelm so maybe that's a listen for people to uh, on that one but we talk about having not just a to-do list but having a to-done list like the be as proud as you are about the things that you've done as much as you focus on the things that that you've not i think perfectionism like just work out what's good enough not everything has to be great Mm. not everything will be a disaster if you don't get it done um and i think the other things i'm sure other people have got loads of ideas I A personal thing for me that was contributing to my overwhelm is that I would overcommit on dates for no reason. So I'd be in a call with someone and I'll say, Yeah, no problem, I'll get that to you by five o'clock today. And I was sort of saying it for myself to create like an action for myself. But in saying it, I then created an expectation that I was going to really struggle to de- deliver on that they didn't expect. And I realized I was doing it all the time. I was like, yeah, with you for nine o'clock tomorrow morning. And they're like, oh, I mean, Friday would have been fine, Helen, but great. And I was like, what, what have I done? So I've just stopped. I've, I've then started to say the other person. I did it in the call before I was joined this. So I was like, when do you need that for? And they were like, oh, probably early next week. Amazing, That that's my new realistic date, not the, the random ones that I seem to be setting to create some really hard life for myself. So if that helps you, take that take that one with you.
0: Fantastic, yes, it does. It helps me actually, Helen, so thank you. So let's see what you, because we have a question to all of the speakers, even the host. What universities did you attend and what subjects did you study? And how do you think that it helped you in your current career?
5: M- me to go first? Yes. Okay. Uh, I went to Nottingham Business School. Uh, I studied business management, and uh, I must have liked it because I then went and did an MBA. And I feel like I studied the same thing twice, to be honest. Uh, but so I don't know. Uh, the, I mean, I met my business partner there, so that was pretty good. I, um, I, do you know, content-wise, not so much. C- confidence, independence, and a network that has sustained me in my personal and professional life. That's what I took out of my time at university.
0: Fantastic. Simon, I think you have an interesting story. you really pivoted.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I went to the London School of Economics uh, here in London. Uh, My dad said to me, success, Simon, is when you uh, graduate, you become a banker, doctor, lawyer and accountant. I didn't like the other three. So by default, it was uh, pursuing a degree in economics at the LSE. I graduated and started as many economists do after LSE in the world of uh, banking and finance, which probably wasn't the best. Time It was mid-2007, a year before the financial crisis really took hold. Uh, and just to add fire to the mix, uh, the first company I decided to sign with was Lehman Brothers. Uh, in hindsight, maybe I should have signed for the Swiss uh, Institutional Credit Suisse, which still stands today. Uh, but that kickstarted, if you will, seven to eight years of career volatility. Uh, I was in and out of a job. It was a sort of industry that you didn't want to be in because it wasn't a question that you could get a job. It was a question of how long you can keep a job, uh, given everyone was cutting back headcount. And even though at the time it was painful, uh, it, in hindsight, was one of the biggest blessings in disguise. You know, I often say to people now, the hardest, most challenging times in your life are the very things that will equip you with the wisdom and know-how to build the best times. So in terms of what I took away from uh, university, it was probably how to get a job. Uh, they definitely teach you that at university well, especially if you're from the LLC. Uh But in terms of applying to what I actually do today, uh, not much aside from the fact that it certainly gives me uh, an interest in my personal investment side of things. So it certainly helped me build another income stream uh, with regards to uh, my portfolio there.
0: Excellent,
2: And i follow that, um, another LSE alum so yeah i attended lsc and um studied economics majoring in accounts and finance and i didn't go into banking i joined um procter and gamble and was responsible for running their fine fragrances business in the uk um as a very young 20 something year old so um i was quite fortunate back then to look after hugo boss and um, georgia beverly hells in the uk and turn those divisions into profit so did I use much from the LSC? I think the LSC gave me a great brand, which opened doors, particularly when I was travelling. It gave me a great network, which I, I still use to this day. It gave me a sense. I want say one thing. It did give me a sense of curiosity. And I think being at the LSC, as somebody who had come from a an un- underestimated background, and you know, somebody who was on free school meals, etc., but being in this phenomenally privileged environment, I just wanted to travel and visit this wonderful network that. I have. But I couldn't afford to um, back then. There's no bank of mum and dad, um, but it, it drove me to work hard and travel's become my passion. Um, so LSE has given me a fond loveness of travel and being curious to explore new things and, and launch a, a multitude of ventures, but focusing on helping those who are underestimated and providing them with access to opportunity.
0: Fantastic. Constance, university you went to, what you studied and what it, it gives you now?
3: Um, so I did my undergrad at Harvard in the 1980s, and I studied sociology, which um, at the time my dad was like, why don't you study a real subject like economics? Um, and I tried, but I didn't enjoy it. So I did sociology. It didn't help me in my career at all, but it, it helped me in, like, it, it developed my interest in people and understanding people and the way people, um, sort of the whole interpersonal side of things. It also, after I finished my undergrad, um, I hated school so much that I said, I'm never going back to university. But then 16 years later, I decided to do my PhD because I really wanted to go into a career in academia. Um, And that was UC Berkeley. And that was because I chose to do that. And because a a PhD is much more focused than an undergrad, it was a better experience. Um, Still very painful. I still hate school. And I don't ever want to be a student again, so
1: thankfully I won't be. Dory, yeah, thank you. So, uh, so I'm I'm a little bit of an outlier here. I went to Smith College uh, in Western Massachusetts. I was a philosophy major, and then I went to Harvard Divinity School, and I got a master's degree in theological studies. Uh, and what has that taught me? Mostly, I think it you know uh, it teaches you honestly, I think, you know, kind of the only things you really need, which is like to, to write and think clearly, and, uh, and hopefully be interesting. Thank you so much. So
0: just because I was asked as well, I went to my local university in Cork, which a lot of people on the call won't have heard of, and studying computer science. I left university um, in 2002. And because of the dot com crash, it was very hard to get a job in Ireland, where I really wanted to stay badly. So I went and did a PhD in economics where they liked computer science uh, people. And then I moved to Australia. So I had gotten over my fear of not wanting to go outside my front door and then back to the LSE. And in between that, when we talk about reinvention, I have been a computer scientist, I've been an econometrician, then a health economist, and now a behavioral scientist. And I actually think the core of my job was always the same, actually. I just think the label the label has moved around with the trend, the trend in the world. Um, but we're almost out of time. So I want to give everybody um, a chance just to say to the audience, if you put yourself in the shoes of an individual who is at the start of the career and nervous about what lies in store in a post-COVID world, what is the one action you would advise them to do to ensure their future career success? Um, Dory, let's start with
1: you. Okay. I will be, I will be brief. If someone is starting their career, um, You're you all are probably going to get the wrong sense of me that I'm like super paranoid about uh, risk, like I should have been an actuary or something. But I do think that especially in the post-COVID world. Risk mitigation is on everyone's mind, and so if you are starting your career um, or you're you know you're relatively new in your career at this point, the question that we need to be asking ourselves, you know, we we, rid- we we mitigate risk for ourselves by creating entrepreneurial side ventures. We can mitigate risk for our employers by enabling them to find out more about us and essentially test drive the experience. Of working with us. And that is why I am a really big fan of actually, you know, I, I know these are these are terrible words in the UK. So forgive me, but thinking about your personal brand. And what I mean by this is you know, please, like, don't let my accent fool you. I don't mean like thumping your chest and saying how awesome you are. Uh, What I mean is that especially on vehicles like social media or blogs or whatever, sharing your ideas, uh, trying to be helpful. I mean, it could literally just be uh, embarking on a campaign of anytime you read an article in a publication that you think is interesting and helpful to other people, share it and append a few sentences about why you think it's helpful. You, you, you don't even have to create things yourself. You can be a curator. But when you do that, the more information you give to other people who are examining, should I hire this person? Should I work with this person? It increases their sense of safety because if they're choosing a known quantity versus an unknown quantity, they're going to want the person that has a track record that they can see publicly and say, oh, well, this person seems sane. They seem reasonably well-informed. Okay. I'm going to go with them. And it stacks the deck in your favor.
0: I love that. It's, it's like the mere exposure effect—the fact that you've actually exposed people to who you are. The chances of you being picked are—I'm always teaching behavioural science. I just—I just can't stop n- labelling what you're saying. Uh, Simon, let's come to you.
4: Yeah, I was gonna—I'm I'm, going to extend what Dory said because I think that was something I was going to share as well about your personal brand. It reminded me of uh, when I did you know, one of my earlier speaking gigs a couple of years ago, and. Uh, There's a technique I used at the time, but I didn't know it was a technique at the time, something that Robert Cialdini writes about in his book, Pre-Suasion. As Dory said, it's to use social media to build a better brand visibility. So before we even had that first conversation, uh, I already linked in with these people who I knew I was going to be speaking with ahead of time. They could see my videos. They could see my posts. They were building up this idea of who Simon was. And so as soon as we had that first meeting, they said to me, Simon, I love that video, by the way. I mean this is the first time we're speaking and before we've even discussed the budget they're already thinking a much bigger budget than they normally pay because they've seen the videos they've seen the articles and so what that does when you think about branding and we whether you realize it or not we are all walking brands we have all of these platforms available to us to share our knowledge to share what we know to share what we're up to that building a personal brand can be the thing that solidifies your career that makes you indispensable because it allows you to transcend your job title. You know, you become someone who, if they decide to restructure the company, and you get fired, well, you can easily walk into another job because lots of people know about you. You know, people follow you, people are influenced by what you have to share. So I think this idea of starting to establish a brand using what is available to you can really be helpful as you embark on your career.
0: Fantastic. Um, Dowsha, one action that people can take, today if they're nervous
2: about their careers? I didn't have an answer, but I'm just going to adapt that given what Dory and Simon have said. And as a, as a former brand management professional at p and I think one thing is worth saying, we hear the word brand used a lot. And the way at P&G we used to define a brand, two words, promise delivered. So what's your promise and how do you deliver it? And both Simon and Dory have given great examples of bringing that promise to life, be it offline or online and proving your delivery of it. So as much as we talk about brand management, for whether it's Hugo Boss, or Campers, or what have you, any of the great PNG brand, you know, brand management with the individual, I mean, I absolutely agree with both, and it's critical. But to people listening, when we talk about brand, what is your promise? How well do you deliver it? And that will help. The only things I was going to say was rather cliche, be brave, be different, be creative, be curious. But to say that, I can say that from a position of privilege now. The reality of the situation for many folk, I think comes down to what Constance was saying earlier about framing and the critical importance of framing and framing your previous experience, be it your work experience, your lived experience, your resilience through your struggles, particularly for underestimated populations, but framing that previous experience to make it count.
5: I love that. Helen, um, for you, one action Yeah, I'll I'll be super quick. Um, uh, Unhook yourself from career comparison. That's my thing. Unhook yourself from career comparison. So don't compare your progress, your achievements. Don't look at them through the light of what other people are doing around you. When you compare yourself, you will start to erode your confidence. You'll start to compete with people that you can collaborate with. It's not helpful. And there's a quote that I I don't know when I came across it. It's not my quote and I can't attribute it to someone because I don't know where I saw it. But it is to run your own race. And I think if you can do that, if you can develop and design and take yourself on a squiggly career that is as individual as you are and not compete and compare with other people. I just feel like you go much further and you learn in a much more open, honest and collaborative way from the people around you. So that would be my kind of advice for people.
0: Thank you. And I I have actually realized that I'm terrible at my own brand because I haven't mentioned that I have a book coming out that's called Think Big. And the reason that I mention it, Helen, is because exactly what you say I write about, that these relative comparisons that we do with other people are not just bad for our progress, but really bad for our mental health and for our well-being. And I was guilty of that when I was young. Of really trying to keep up with the Joneses or whoever happened to be maybe going a bit faster than me and when you do that whoever goes faster than you even if you manage to outtake them you find someone else it's such a drag on your cycle. so thank you that's really a really good point point. Um, and thank you for reminding me to mention the book um constant last but not least what is the action you want people to take
3: so i would tell them to think about stephen covey's um, concept of the circle of influence versus the circle of concern I know we've talked about a lot of different books here, and I should probably be plugging my own book, but actually, I'm going to plug this book. If you haven't read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, it is still relevant today. And the idea of the circle of influence is we all have a very large circle of concern. We have a lot of things we're worried about, like the virus, you know, the, um, what the government is doing, all these things we can't control. We have a much smaller circle of influence, and these are the things we actually have control over. So focus on your circle of influence. Figure out what is your circle of influence? What are those actions you can take? You can't control the virus. You can control your attitude. So, um, and I'll give you an example of this. Some of the students that I'm working with right now, graduate students, um, postgraduate students, they we were upset to find out that we didn't offer a course on diversity, diversity management. But instead of just being upset about it, because obviously you can't do anything about it, we, can't, we don't offer the course, they decided to create a diversity week. So they've now, they're planning a week and towards the end of March, they're going to have a diversity week. They've invited some speakers. They've got the head of LSE is going to introduce the speakers. Um, and so this is what I mean is what can you control? And now these students have something great to put on their CV. Like this is going to make them look really good when they're out job hunting, but it's also improving their experience at LSE. So focus on that circle of influence.
0: And what you said, Constance, really reminds me for people who are starting in their career, connecting with somebody like you, if you've done an action like that, and making you aware of it, because you will write the reference mm-hmm. um, one day. And I say this to all my students: let me know what you're doing, because again, I'm so up in my own head, trying to navigate my own life, I might actually miss it. And if you can imagine yourself writing the reference for these students, you actually have a really powerful example of leadership and adding value to the LSC, which I think, which I think is fantastic. Um, so we're out of time. We had a lot of questions that we didn't get to. Thank you everybody for being here on the panel and also in the audience. You know, I know time is really precious to people, so I'm really grateful for the privilege. If you do want to learn more about um, careers, we have another event on the 25th of March. Um, Thank you very much again for being with us, and I hope to see you all on the 25th of March. Thank you, Dowsham, Helen.